0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people. And when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites. And you'll get access to lots of other amazing content too. Always available on demand, with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com, free of charge, or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God!
2: You are not alone
1: just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here right. we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is writers talking into microphones. This is podcasted for your enjoyment. Thank you for being here. It's good to be with you. I hope you're well wherever you are out there. Uh, I'm here in Los Angeles in the home office, and I've had a frustrating day. I'll just come right out and say that. I was writing. I was trying to write. I was sitting here. I was hunched over. I was deleting things. I was drawing a blank. I was mumbling to myself. I was mumbling invectives. I was staring at a flashing cursor. It was one of those days. Uh, stuff happens. You deal with it. You take some deep breaths. You eat some food. You tell yourself that you'll try again tomorrow. Uh, so otherwise, I've been getting a lot of mail. And uh, as if, uh, you know, right, it was like kind of like perfect timing. I got a lot of letters uh, today uh, involving, or at least in the last 24 hours, involving writing and how to approach the writing life and how to approach writing as a career and where to get your MFA I get a lot of letters asking questions like that, and uh, I appreciate it. I always appreciate hearing from people, but I just thought that it was sort of poetic that I received uh, like an influx of these kinds of letters today as I was uh, struggling so mightily to write my own stuff. And, uh, you know, just to try to kind of uh, answer, even though I don't feel like I'm necessarily qualified to give advice on anything in life. Uh, I'll try to at least uh, give my particular take on it when it comes to writing and whether or not you should do it and how to approach it and all that. Uh, It's like the old uh, Lori Moore story, How to Become a Writer. Have you ever read that one? I think you should read it. Uh, It's a story story from her collection called Self-Help, and uh, it begins with the line, First, try to be something else, anything else. And then it goes on from there. And, And basically the point of it is, Uh, You know, if you try these other things, and despite these other things, you still can't not be a writer, uh, then you're probably a writer. Because every person I know who's an actual writer can't help it. Uh, You know, I know I can't help it. I've tried. I've tried to do other stuff. I always come back to it. And, uh, you know, the truth is that it's a difficult way to live. And it's a particularly difficult way to make a living or to try to make a living. And I think rational people uh, probably wouldn't look at this and say, you know, hey, this is a good idea, I'm going to try to make a living this way, Uh, you know, to do it requires a certain irrationality, a certain daringness, uh, maybe a certain kind of idealism, because it's a risky, demoralizing, exhausting, exhilarating, uh, intermittently rewarding, nerve-wracking, competitive, uh, and sometimes soul-crushing profession, the hallmarks of which include manic depression, substance abuse, and wretched poverty, uh, and it's also, uh, you know, a profession at which a very small number of people can make an actual functional living. But that said, you know, if you want to do it, if you really have the bug, then there's no stopping you. And I promise you that you'll do it anyway. Uh, and if you don't do it, if somehow you're able to suppress that and you go down a different track, uh, I can, I can guarantee you, you'll be extremely miserable. And if that's the case, then you should start writing. And if you start writing, then I think you'll find that you're only somewhat miserable. You know, (laughs) at that point, you'll become functionally, normally miserable as opposed to intensely miserable. And uh, you'll also have some good days where the words are coming easily and everything feels like it's in its right place. And uh, on those days, you will feel very good about yourself and you will have achieved glory. Does that make sense?
0: Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature,
2: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline.
1: My guest today is Thad Zelkowski. He is the director of the writing program at the Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. His memoir, On a Wave, was a finalist for the Penn Martha Allbrand Award in 2003, and his debut novel, Wichita, has just been published by Tonga Books, a new imprint of Europa Editions. Very pleased to have him here on the program. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Thad Zilkowski, the author of Wichita. I'm
3: up in my little boy's room. We live in a faculty house on Pratt's campus in Brooklyn, in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. And we're lucky enough to have this, for this neighborhood, relatively big space. Um, You know, it's like a a row house. And uh, we've been here 10 years. And uh, it's been great to us, and the neighborhood's just gotten fancier and fancier around us. So basically, now we could never afford to buy anything if we wanted to. But we have we have a this kind of college house.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, like, I feel like a lot of people I know who teach in the New York area, there's like, there's fa- there's good faculty housing. They do a, a decent job of like making sure that faculty has some place to live. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually only know of NYU is doing that. There may be other deals. Columbia, no, Columbia and NYU are the two places, yeah. There are just so many colleges in the city that I couldn't say that that's true for most of them even. But I know the kind of better known ones, the, the basically the wealthier ones, have good faculty housing, yeah.
1: So how did you wind up at Pratt?
3: I um, I was writing a lot of art criticism in New York as a poet. Kind of thinking that was what a New York schoolish poet did. You know, that would make my work better. That's what Ashbery had done and O'Hara and so forth. And uh, so I just kind of talked my way into writing for Art Forum. And I was, meanwhile, getting my PhD at Yale. And I got that. And then I taught for a couple of years at Vassar. And then I taught at Bard as an adjunct. And I really hated adjuncting I because I, I had been a uh, full time at Vassar, and I'd gotten all the the um, perquisites. You know, I got healthcare care, and I got a good salary, and I got great students, and then suddenly I was, that job was over, and I was just one of, you know, a dozen people um, carpooling up from New York to Bard, and I, that kind of embittered me, and the other adjuncts were kind of bitter, so I kind of caught this mood of sour. You know, exploited labor.
1: Yeah, I was. <laughs> and I was, I was, about I, was to w- I was an adjunct for a while, and I was. I, I was somewhat bitter about the, uh, the lack of benefits and whatnot. <laughs> so I can relate. Yeah,
3: and and also just that you're kind of peripheral. You know, the they're, the they're, the they're full timers are looking at you like, you know, you may be here for a while, and you may not. We don't care. Yeah. So uh, that 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 left a bad taste in my mouth, and I I I was basically. Uh, convinced I was going to do something other than teach. And right around that time I made that decision, I saw a little ad in the Times saying that there was a, an opening at, at Pratt uh, for, uh, you know, freshman English. And I thought, well, you know, I write our criticism, I'm a poet, uh, this seems perfect for me. And I got the job, and this is in 97. And then a couple of years after I got the job, uh, they started a creative writing program here, and I ended up directing that. So it kind of morphed into a really good gig for me, even though it was kind of unlikely that I was going to get a job at all.
1: Yeah, no, it sounds like you sort of lucked out. And then as far as, uh, like, you mentioned talking your way into Art Forum. uh, Mm -hmm. Like, that seems, you know... Uh that, that begs questions because I feel like uh, I'm always curious to know how people land where they do. Like, what did you mm-hmm. do? Like, you know, did you just call them up or, or how did you talk your way in? Like, well, I had story? a
3: couple of clips. You know, I, I had written. I, I think the real way it worked is I had a friend in graduate school who knew an editor at Arts. And I talked and I, I really had read. You know at that point, like nineteen ninety or nineteen eighty nine there was a lot of uh intersection between literary theory and uh art criticism and i so it was easy for me to do it at that point to kind of fake it and then the more I did it the more the less theoretical I got, and the more interested just in kind of painting I became rather than saying the uh, conceptual sculpture and so forth so I also feel that as a writer. I could, you know, if you sat down with me and said, okay, here's an, here's an aquarium and here's the business and this is fish and these are fish people. And like half an hour later, I could write a review of a new, I don't know, you know, aquarium setup, Or I could do it for computers or I could do it, I could review a lot of different things because I can kind of fake the discourse. Right. And that was a bit the way it felt with art. And I always tell my students, I said if you can write, you can imitate any surface and sound authoritative, even though you may not be, but it, gradually, after writing for eight, ten years, I actually was authoritative because <laughs> you see enough of it. But when I first started, I was for sure not that well
1: yeah I think, I think that happens a lot. I think I see a lot of uh, i feel like especially in the media cycle now when things are churned out so quickly. Uh, you know, especially when I'm reading essays online, there's all these like there There seems to be this thing where like, you know, essayists are racing to respond to what's happening in the culture as fast as possible because it's like a, a competition for traffic. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, like, yeah. The, the, yeah. Quick, the quicker you can comment on whatever the uh, flavor of the week is, the better it is for your traffic. But I mean, you know. I think some people can can do great work quickly, but I think it's really hard. You know, I think you're. You
3: yeah, I'm not one of them. Yeah, yeah. Me, me neither. <laughs> I, I when I when when my novel came out and I was encouraged to, to blog or to even you know post something for an on an online component of a journal, I started to give it serious consideration. And I thought I can't do it. I just can't live with it. It's too quick. I can't. You know, unless I've really kind of gestated something and polished it, I can't put my name on it.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, it
3: just freaks me out. No, you
1: know? <laughs> I'm increasingly that way, and like I'm getting to, I'm doing some press for the this podcast too, because we're coming up on a year and a hundred episodes and whatnot, and uh-huh. you know, as you know, when you're doing press, like sometimes you're doing interviews, and a lot of times those interviews are conducted via email, in which case you compose. Um, Yeah, and that's what we're talking about here. So interview sort of like uh, is misleading. It's really composition.
3: (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's a completely different thing. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, but then like, you know, there's other things where I'm sort of uh, been asked to write little things or write an essay and Mm -hmm. uh, it's stressful because I, you know, like like you say, I, I putting stuff out online that hasn't been properly considered, which I have done before. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I'm my own worst critic uh, is extremely mm-hmm. extremely stressful, <laughs> and I don't.
3: Yeah, no, I, I just just imagining I was sitting up at night in my bed. I can I was, I couldn't do it.
1: Yeah, well, it's good that you at least had that sort of self knowledge. You know, I think some people don't learn that until they've already published like sixty thousand words online that shouldn't be there. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, so let's talk about Yale. Uh, you know, you, you you got your PhD at Yale while you were living in New York City.
3: I was up there. I always had a, a girlfriend in New York. It seemed like I always I wanted to go to New. I wanted to to go to graduate school in New York because I wanted to go to New York. And I was too, you know, broke and lazy to really just get a full on job in New York. I was moving from D.C. and so I got. I went to the, where the bestsellership was, which was at Yale, and I would come. I would commute down to New York a lot. Um, and then took some time off. It just took me a total of eight years to finish, and I took I think a year and a half off during which I lived in New York. But I was always coming down for the weekend or whatever. I, it was hard to be in New Haven, but Yale in general was a great thing for me because it just took me out of the workforce. I had a I could I could I could think, I could write, and teach. And I, I found that I, li- I liked teaching. I wasn't sure at all that I would. But they give you a shot at that right away, almost like two years into it. Um, so, you know, at the time, I didn't like it. I suffered, and I, I, I complained a lot. But in retrospect, I think I was really fortunate to get that uh, fellowship and just to have all that time and read whatever I wanted, really.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I've had that. Con- I've had this conversation with multiple people on this show, and it's about... Uh, you know, where else, other than academia these days, can you hide out and have that kind of time to read and think and write? It's just, you know, unless you want to live, yeah. unless you want to like move to, uh, you know, Cambodia or some place where, there's, act- yeah, where no. there's actually an exchange rate that's that kind of, you know, that has that kind of advantage for you. It's that, you know, there aren't many other options.
3: No, no, not to have nothing, not to have that much freedom. Um, yeah, a friend of mine is re- from graduate school is reminding me of how I used to say to him all the time, just give me $10,000 and I'll go away. <laughs> that was uh, some, some some sort of fantasy I had about, you know, a patron or I could out a guy I could, you know, I needed to be even freer than, than I was in graduate school. I, mean, I just wanted some little, um, kind of stipend or check for a year, uh, to live alone in in a cabin i guess was my fantasy. Well, you know, yeah. graduate school is definitely the next best thing to that.
1: Well, no, and you know, it's uh the more you read about literary history and the more literary bi- you know, literary biographies that you read, uh, the more you realize uh, how how common it is for uh, writers uh, who wind up having success to be financially lucky somehow. And what just popped mm-hmm. into my brain as you were saying that was uh was Harper Lee. And she, uh-huh. she wrote uh, To Kill a Mockingbird in a year where uh, her, you know, some close friends of hers in New York who happened to be wealthy paid for her life for a year and said, go write. Wow. And that's how that's, wow. that's how To Kill a Mockingbird. And she responded by writing To Kill a Mockingbird. So <laughs> Fantastic. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, I didn't know that until recently either. But it's like, oh, my God, you know, it's like she couldn't she couldn't work on the book until she got that opportunity. And the way she got it was through. Um, you know, a little bit a patronage of
3: patronage system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, someone had the money, someone, right. Was it willing to fund her? Yeah, no, it's, it's really hard. And, and, and to, to apply for a grant, I always found that enormously taxing is like, how much time do I have to give? how do I have that time to set aside, to apply for a grant and, and invest all this psychic energy into it and then probably not get it.
2: Right. Right. No, it's a, yeah. They, that's it,
3: a, it is really, I I think it's very, people, people tend to want to, to poo-poo academia in that way, but it is really the last, one of the last refuges in that sense. And you don't have to do anything with it. Now, I didn't have to become an English professor. It turned out I could become a writing professor at an art school, but at least I was granted you know, those eight years to just chill out.
1: Yeah, no, that's extraordinary. And you got it. I mean, and at the end of it, you got a PhD from Yale, which can't hurt, you know.
3: Yeah, that's a really great meal ticket, and I'm. You know, it's beyond that. That's that's a more kind of flip way of putting. It. That's the way I used to talk about it. Now I feel more sentimental about it. But um, I was at several points ready to bail out too. I didn't think I was going to finish it, and I'm really glad I did finish it. Just personally, but also just for the closure of the terminal degree, as they say, you know, because it it will always be there for me to. Use as a kind of um, proof you know
1: yeah absolutely and, and and what exactly did you study did you say that already
3: oh uh, no i didn't i was in a, I was I was an Americanist you know i had a i, I ended up doing my dissertation on William Collis Williams and uh, Marcel Duchamp and the found, the poetics of the sound like a found you know like ready mades but um I, I i I did all sorts of things you know i, I just i read a lot of theory i i, I you know, I, I wrote mostly about poetry and poetics, which no one was doing then. So it was kind of like I was a bit of an odd bird. I didn't do the fashionable thing, which was to write about post-colonialism or, uh, God, you know, gender or something.
1: Yeah. Well, no, but it sounds like, you know, the approach that you took, um, you know, was intensively academic, and you really went deep inside of. The or at least some of the component parts of what makes literature. I mean, I'm I'm terrible at talking about this kind of stuff, but the point that I'm trying to get at, and and I guess the question that I'm trying to present is, you know, in in taking that approach and in going, kind of burrowing down deep into some of these, um, you know, areas of study and, and aspects of literature. Do you feel like when you when you kind of like surfaced after doing all of that and then went to sit down at your desk to work? that it really brought you something unique? Because, you know, I think a lot of writers are very well read, and I think a lot of writers have, um, you know, that experience, and then they sit down mm-hmm. and write, but not all writers are, are super immersed in theory.
3: Yeah, that's a good one. That's, a, that's actually a difficult question for me to tease out. I don't really know, I mean, wh- whether or not it's benefited me as a writer. I think it actually hurt me as a writer initially. It took me a while to un. I didn't realize how academicized my writing had become, but when I look back on it now, it took me a while to write my way out of that. And, um, so there was a, definitely a price I paid for being immersed in that. And then also, um, I, but I think the upside of it is that I don't feel a kind of, superficial intimidation about it. You know, I don't don't feel like... I feel like what it did was allowed me to tell my own story without feeling like I had to be Thomas Pynchon. You know what I'm saying? I could be simple or I could be... And I was... I knew what I was not doing in the sense of any kind of metafictional thing or any kind of fancy conceptual work. I knew very clearly that I had thought a lot about that and didn't find it... Very attractive to me
1: personally as a writer. Follow me. Yeah, like you kind of demystified it because. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think sometimes you know I've I've had this experience when I when I read somebody like Pynchon or I read, um, you know, anybody with a big brain and and you know, medical.
3: Metaf- like David Foster Wallace would be a good example who really does worship at the at the altar of intellect. You know, I didn't. I knew I didn't. And in that way, David Foster Wallace interested me not at all, Uh, whereas I I had a more genuine deep engagement with Pynchon when I was an undergrad, but I later, the kind of really cerebral writing, like David Foster Wallace, I I never found it interesting. What I found interesting was more heartfelt, kind of Dennis Johnson or even Alice Monroe or something like that, over more cerebral so you would think having gone to that program i'd be more attracted to other stuff but i wasn't i think in your word de- demystifying was right on the money but also just you know kind of understanding of what really uh what i really valued as a reader as a writer
1: okay so and then did it did it take any of um or, or how did it, how does it affect your perception of criticism you know what I'm saying? Like, did, yeah. did it help you anticipate criticism of your own work or take any of your, uh, discomfort over that? If there was any, uh, out of the picture?
3: Yeah, no, it's, well, it set the bar really high is what it does do. You know, you're like, this isn't really, you know, this isn't as cutting as they think or, you know, so yeah, I, I think it definitely gave me a sense of, uh, a somewhat of a sense of being, uh, hard to hit in that way. Like it, I, I don't i i, I but, I, but I, then again, I haven't had the misfortune of having any really devastatingly uh brilliant person tear my work to shreds in print, so I don't know right. maybe i would maybe I would weep, you know I don't know
1: yeah, you know it's hard to say like it, it,
3: it's hard to say it's hard to say i don't I certainly don't feel invulnerable to criticism because of that, but I can see how some you know like some of what I've read. In response to my novel, has probably failed to cut me because it was negative. It has failed to cut me because of some because of the 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 idea I, the sort of standard I have of critical um, writing is pretty high because of all, all that I read of it.
1: Sure, sure. Now, um, the fact that you went to Yale and got your Ph.D. I mean, were you always uh, academically inclined? Were you always a good student?
3: No, I was a really a no, pretty. Um, mediocre student in junior high and high school. My mother was reminding me that in junior high, they were the, the teachers got together with her and said, well, you know, we're looking at putting Thad in kind of more vocational school. He just doesn't seem to engage with any of this stuff. <laughs> we were laughing. I mean, I really, I was kind of a jock. I was a surfer. I, I, well, I was just kind of a, I barely kind of showed up actually, you know, mentally for the classes. And it wasn't until I was in my second It wasn't until I moved to Kansas from Florida where I was a surfer and started writing letters back to my best friend that I really started to enjoy writing when I was like 15 and also realized that I really was taking refuge in reading too, to the kind of salvation. And that was a big turning point for me. And after that, I became more academic. But it was relatively late in the game. So as we're talking, by the time it really hit, I was 16, 17. Okay. And that's late. Yeah, okay. For
1: college sure yeah and and you know, it's interesting to hear you say that like it's it's kind of sparking memories of my own like the fact that um you know you moved and it was like this move that triggered in you uh, mm-hmm. you know this this uh, love of uh, books and this gravitation towards writing um, and
3: it was a disruption too it was like i was suddenly alienated from all the, the the things that had come that had become really second nature to me like my friends and this thing i did it's this surfing thing i did and i took very seriously and and the beach and being part of that whole fabric and then totally ripped out of that almost like an illness and uh yeah having to find other ways to uh gratify myself and to save myself
1: yeah no because like i i i can remember distinctly like we moved when i was in sixth grade i started sixth grade at a new school and I became, like, extremely invested in books and studies and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't think, it, had we not moved, I don't think I ever would have probably wound up on this track. I think that was a huge... Well, no, well, you moved from where to where? Uh, just Wisconsin to Indiana, but it was still disruptive. I yeah. mean, you know, when you're a <sighs> kid, yeah. you leave You one. lose all your friends. Yeah, it's like dying. You're like, oh, my God. Yeah, it, it, and then you're an alien in this new place, and you don't know a soul, and, you know, I, I just... And you find
3: out how... Cold people can be because they didn't go to kindergarten with you or whatever. They they just <laughs> you're you're not you're not really quite real.
1: Yeah, and you don't have yeah. any place to sit at lunch. And I mean, I just remember that being very difficult. And I remember I think like, you know, probably it's like a search for identity. Like it's like okay, mm-hmm. well, I guess like, I can try to be smart or something. You know, I, I think that yes. I, I just didn't know where else to go, so I sort of fell into it um, by accident. You know, but I'm, I'm sort of you know obviously glad I did.
3: Yeah. No, I I I, I really feel. Uh, happy that I was, you know, torn out of that life
1: too. Well, and it's, it's, I think it's in a way, like, it's as difficult as it is, and there are downsides because I don't feel rooted, for example. Like, I don't feel like I really have a home because we, mm-hmm. moved, we moved around. My, my folks have since left uh, even Indiana where I, you know, went to junior high and high school. So I don't have, like, a place in the world that is home, really, except for wherever mm-hmm. I am at the time, you know um mm-hmm. but i do think that like moving and having to assimilate and adjust and do all that stuff teaches you so much you know i think there's something to that and uh oh, yeah absolutely you can't get it absolutely. if you if you're you know stuck in the same place so do I you mean do you look back on your yeah. on your move to wichita and and think to yourself that it was net positive or do you look back on it and say i wish i never would have left florida
3: <laughs> i i i see it primarily as positive yeah for sure uh, and I think you know the only thing that would have turned me into an artist or a writer would have been an illness. You know, I often we were you were talking about uh, literary biographies earlier, and that's one of the things I noticed. There's always a sickness. There's always something that disrupts things, and or or that kind of disruption or of a move, an alienation. And I don't think I would have become a writer at all probably had I not uh, done that, had yeah. that move.
1: Well, let's yeah. let's talk about uh, surfing because you wrote a book yep. about surfing. You wrote a memoir called On a Wave, and right, um, you know, I want to know about you know your childhood. Were you born in Florida?
3: No, I was born in North Carolina. Actually, well, my, my father's an academic, and we were. I was born in Chapel Hill when he was in grad school, and then I moved to Lynchburg, Virginia, for a couple of years, and then David, he got a job in D.C at George Washington University, and that's when my parents broke up. And when they broke up, my mother remarried a guy who got a job, you know, in Florida on the East Coast, uh, Space Coast. And that's where I became a surfer at age 10 and just became hardcore, uh, you know, kind of much the way I threw myself into books later. I threw myself into surfing and uh, became a competitive surfer, you know, was sponsored and – and that was my entire world. I just assumed I was going to move to Hawaii eventually, but then it was, it was broken apart. But surfing was the, the one thing that I felt authoritative about. And I also knew it was a weird thing. For most people in our culture have a kind of really cliché idea of surfing, so I thought it would be really interesting to try to write about this uh, in a memoirish way and to make surfing uh, graspable for outsiders, because it's really, I, I often found people would think like surfing would have, have have such a have a kind of dumb blonde reputation, you know, kind of Spicoli, Jeff Spicoli, uh, and it, it'd be as if someone said, yeah, I'm going to write a, a memoir about having been a really in, uh, in, uh, serious pinball player or <laughs> <Right. laughs> Who wants to read that? That's a trivial thing, you know. But to me, surfing was like a religion. It was like dance and, and, and my place of worship, and it was a very serious, deep thing. And so I thought, gosh, that'd be... I, not, I had read nothing but kind of bad attempts at th- writing about surfing, so I thought it'd be really cool to, to be able to do that. So I tried.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, no, it's, I think it's like a worthy thing, and I, I, I wish, if I could do any sport, uh, well, I would love to be like a functional surfer and be able to get in the water and stand up, but it's so hard to learn out here. I live in California and it's so hard to learn cause the breaks are so crowded and I mean, uh, I, yeah. I don't have the time anyway, but if I, where, where
3: in California,
1: Los Angeles. So
3: yeah, no, it's hard. It's hard to start as an adult, partly also because your ego is, is more rigid and kind of fixed. When you're a kid, you can undergo the humiliation of learning surfing where there's a lot of pecking order and and kind of hazing rituals and stuff. But when you're an adult, it's hard to undergo that. But I think if you just go off on a loan and surf junkie break and get in the water enough, you could do it. Yeah. I'll tell you what. I'll give you a lesson. If I come out to L.A., I give surf lessons at my son's school as a way to kind of contribute. You know, everyone kind of does whatever. Right, right. And uh, that's my thing. So I've been giving surf lessons and I can, I, I, that was the first time I ever made any money actually was giving my mother's tennis lady friends a surf lesson.
1: Oh, really? Okay. Cause that, yeah. you know, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I would actually probably take you up on that. But I, I, I remember I went to college in Colorado and I, uh, you know, was like in the dorms with all these kids who had grown up skiing. And of yeah. course I was from Indiana. I'd never skied before. And of course I get like the, the pass to go up to ski and, they're like, you know, don't worry, we'll teach you. And then, like, we get up to, like, the top of the mountain. And they, basically, <laughs> they basically took off. And, you know, like, they were like, just just ski. You know, you can do it. And uh, I just remember, uh, you know, being like, uh, wait a minute. I thought there was going to be some sort of lesson here. So just <laughs> as long as you don't take me, like, out there and just leave me.
3: <laughs> yeah, no, I promise I'll do that. Although skiing, you can't actually ride down the mountain the first day or the first weekend. Whereas surfing... You may not be able to do it it depends on the surf and the waves moving and the mountains not moving at least yeah. but surfing is harder than skiing but i do think that there's a very similar kind of insider outsider thing with skiing i picked it up when i was i had a i had a, a colorado experience where i was really made aware of what a kook i was and and what a beginner is in skiing. It's similar to surfing in that way.
1: Yeah, well there's like yeah, there's like a whole lingo and there's, you know, however long you've been doing it matters and how sure. you know how well you know. What you're wearing matters. Yeah, everything. It's a whole culture. Yeah. It's a whole culture. There's a
3: whole subculture, yeah very similar to surfing that way.
1: Well, yeah, and I look back on, like, moving out there, and uh, and with some degree of horror, thinking back to, like, how quickly I raced to, like, assimilate into that and get the right fleece or whatever, you know?
3: And yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's a serious thing. I mean, you know, you do, you do you, there's a part of it that's just about, you want to be anonymous. You don't, you don't want to be noticed as an outsider.
2: Exactly. It's
3: not just it's not just about kind of wanting approval. You just want to be kind of left alone in your, you want to be part of the woodwork
1: of it. That's right. That's, I know I've had that, yeah. I think I've had that conversation before too, where it's like that feeling of not wanting to stand out by what you wear, you know, at all. Mm-hmm.
3: I think that's also a very writerly, uh, uh, attitude and, and kind of desire is to just be a bit invisible.
1: I think yeah. so. I think so. But I think like, uh, you know, while there's a lot of truth to that, and I think that's probably the norm uh, do you feel like any of that might be changing or coming under pressure in the digital age? Like I sort of feel like there's some, you know, I, I feel like the internet kind of makes marketing people out of everybody. And, you know, I, I see writers yeah. like present, like there's like presentation online becomes such an issue. And I feel like certain writers are really adept at presenting themselves like photographically and otherwise. And, Um, That becomes a factor, you know, and it's like, yeah, no, that's
3: an interesting point. I think that really is true. I, I do think that there's a lot more pressure on writers to be like actors and to have a kind of platform of a certain celebrity that has to do with being visually presentable. And yeah. Uh, but I think I really think the great thing about writing—the thing that uh, the reason why that's uh, going to be a passing thing—is that the writing has to. I still think it's the writing on the page is what matters. I don't think it's going to, you know, I think that it in terms of a publishing career that, that that's going to be there as a new kind of pressure. But I, I think that in terms of the true success of a work, it doesn't matter.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it feels like there's like all this uh, other static uh, happening, and it's just, I don't know. It's people just kind of like contorting themselves every which way possible in a desperate attempt to somehow generate sales.
3: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I, I felt that. From within the publishing houses, I work, I, I've worked. i had the good fortune to you know, get publishing contracts from a couple of places, and it was, like, and it was trade publishing, and I, that was a new world to me as a poet, and I was just like, wow, this is exciting, but really distracting, and really, in a way, a bad thing, you know,
2: because yeah, well, <laughs> I good.
3: just wanted to move on and keep working on my, the next thing. I didn't want to do any sort of, and, the, and I think even if you're not giving a big multi-city book tour now, there's a way in which you can do the, an analogous thing or an equivalent thing, which is on doing it online, like you were saying. You, know, you, can, you can go nuts um, just on your own and work as your own PR person if you want. You know, so I think you've got to choose. I think writers are having to choose a lot more whether they could do that or not.
1: Well, you know, I'll tell you, I did that uh, with my first book, and I did way too much of it, I think, in retrospect. <laughs> like, I, I think, like, what you were saying earlier about the word on the page ultimately being the thing, like... Mm-hmm. That, that's where I've come to in my mind. Like nothing else matters. Uh,
3: yeah, I really think that that. I think if you just. I think that you you're safe with that. I really think that that's just the case. And if you notice as a reader what you're really moved by, and how things can come out of left field, and you're just with this book, you're just with this these words on the page. It's such a great. It's such a br- it's such a profound thing. How. Uh, how pure it is in that way, yeah. how it is disconnected. Right. and 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 it 'll be someone you 've never heard of or or um, a lot more common experience I have is someone i 've heard a lot about, but i don 't find the work on the page interesting, and as much as I want to like it, i just don 't like it
1: right right well, you know and it 's like i think it 's like a matter ultimately of striking some kind of balance because you know as much as uh the the words on the page and doing the work itself is the most critical thing. Uh, I think it's obviously totally defensible when you're rolling a book out into the world to go around and do some media or do a podcast or write a blog or, you know, like I I don't mean to say that all of that is bad. I just think that, like, you know, writers, uh, I think, have to fight against the impulse to keep pushing and keep pushing in that vein because they want desperately for their book to find readers. And at some point you have to just pull the plug and go back to work, you know.
3: Yeah, I was reading somewhere about Denise Levertoff, complaining in the 50s like when i think that this whole the whole idea of a book tour or giving a reading is a relatively recent thing and like writers weren't doing that necessarily in the 50s and then in the 60s there was a kind of pressure from the publishers and she resented it as a a kind of writer who had been come up in a different era where that wasn't expected and now you know there's just it's just a given and you're and you're and you're led to think that it's that it's nothing but a kind of um honor and in a lot of ways it is an honor and I don't I, I am really genuinely divided I mean I love to be a t- to get attention but I also love more than I love to get attention I love to write the next thing and I don't know how to write the next thing except by isolating myself
1: I, I don't know how to do it otherwise yeah you know it has to there has to be an isolation and you can't have yeah. Um, you know, the phone ringing five hours a day and a hundred emails coming in. It's just like you have to find a way to close all that stuff off. And, you know, I, yeah. I've often had the thought that, like, you know, I, most writers, like the overwhelming majority uh, of writers I know deep down would love, like, the, the ideal scenario would be to have a readership big enough that you just wouldn't need to do anything. Right. <laughs> except write. And you could sit there and, and just, like, turn down every interview request and turn down every. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and just be able to write the books, and um, you know, I think that there are maybe that's certainly my fantasy. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, yeah. I think that's probably, but I think like maybe almost nobody lives that in practice, except for maybe like you know the late J.D. Salinger or something. But he didn't. Or DeLillo or someone. Yeah, yeah, but even DeLillo, every once in a while, you, you know, he'll do an interview with the New York Times or something.
3: You know, like, yeah. And when he and when you read that, do you think that he's doing it under pressure from his publicity agent, or do you think he wants to do it?
1: I No, I think I, that's the thing is that, you know, it, you can close yourself off, but I think that there's – I think the uh, – I can defend the idea of doing publicity twofold. One would be that, you know, you, do, you owe it to your publisher to try to get out there and help at least a little bit, you know, because mm-hmm. you're, you're the author of the book. And then secondly, um, you know, obviously you're putting a lot of yourself into your work and that's available to your readers, but um, I, I think readers appreciate it when authors, you know, come out of their ivory towers. Like there's something s- – there's something sort of or there can be something sort of snobbish about it, I think, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like I'm too good to come down and like talk to you people or whatever.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I see I hear you. I, I do. I totally do. I mean, for me as a poet it was huge to certainly to hear readings of the poets I admired. I mean, it was actually like it, it, I felt like I internalized their voices in various ways too. It helped my my writing technically, but it was also just great to hear them. And I, I don't know what I would be as a writer if I hadn't had the, you know, the good the privilege of going to hear these guys and women read at Library of Congress or whatever in D.C. You know, it was a big deal. And they were not. They were they were also um, loving the attention and loving the contact. Because I think that there's a, the isolation comes at a price. You know, you start to feel crazy if you're... and But that's also where teaching comes in. A lot of writers get a sense of being humanized or out of the kind of craziness of their isolation by just having students.
1: Yeah, no, it's like... I, that's why I think, I mean, one of the upsides of teaching as a complementary profession to writing is the fact that you do have the balance between isolation and being social. Uh, yeah,
3: I mean, I, I know as a director of a writing program. The way I meet people most of the time is just, you know, meeting younger writers, see if they're, they would like to teach and whether they would work out at Pratt. And it's a great way for me to socialize. I don't know that I would otherwise, you know, I don't go to cocktail parties much. I don't do any of that. Um, so yeah, it's a great kind of substitute of, or, or some sort of thing for social
1: life. Why, why do cocktail parties always suck? Do you know what I'm saying? Like- I, I mean, some
3: people are really dest at them, and they, they seem to get energy from them. But I think most people suffer. I, I think I, I think that it's just like when you turn away from you know you know you're under pressure to kind of chat with as many people as you can. And for me, I always feel like I'm 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 uh, abandoning someone when I turn away, you know. <laughs> and yet they're expecting me. I just think the form is very hard.
1: Yeah, and then then when like for whatever reason like the conversation that you're in like tails off, or the person that you're talking to leaves you for someone else, and then then you're like the floater, and you're just sort of yeah. floating around, and you're you're like kind of trying to latch on like a barnacle to somebody else's conversation. That's an awkward time.
3: Terrible. Yeah. No, I I I, I, I really have a struggle with cocktail parties, um, but I, I I do think that there are certain extroverts. I don't think writers are. I think you know, like a kind of Bill Clinton will go to a cocktail party and come out the other end and just be kind of on fire from it, all the people he 's met, whereas I feel drained by it, usually, yeah no, and I think that 's a more introverted writerly uh, response to socializing as you 'm um, you know like at best a one on one you know, person
1: yeah, yeah, I mean I, like it 's funny that you bring up Bill Clinton because he 's such like he like 's like the the, the prototype he 's the perfect example. Of the extrovert, uh, yeah, yeah, like that person who just feeds on it. Like there's, there's, it's, it's bottomless. Like he could talk to <laughs> a thousand people in a day and shake a thousand hands, and um, at the end of it all, feel like you know, running six <laughs> miles. Like I would be, yeah. Would, and then he wants fetal. to he'll
3: stay up till two a.m. A. Yeah, he's gotten so much energy coming in. You know. Yeah, no, uh, that was actually the one of the weird remarks about Obama is one of the, someone who is no longer in the administration said he's an introvert, and I thought, how can that possibly be that a politician? Could really be an introvert, but I don't know. I yeah, really you know, maybe that that, and maybe that he actually is, as a personality, more bookish and more turned in on himself than we realize. Yeah. You know.
1: Well, I mean, I you know, I think he's distinctly literary. Uh, I mean, insofar <laughs> insofar as like, politicians can be. I mean, you know. Oh,
3: I mean, I was reading some of the biography, his memoir uh, in, a, in a in a larger essay about it in the New York Review of Books, and I thought. This is really good writing, I mean he can write,
1: yeah, he's not exactly I mean, like there are some that's
3: not that's unusual now. I mean, that's what I always say to my I always say about uh to prospective parents that if their kids want to be writers. I say like you know we live in a post literate culture, and what does that mean? That means that when it comes time for Hillary Clinton to write her autobiography, she gets a ghostwriter, and there's no shame in that now, and that's because we, that's what that's one of the definitions of being in a post literate culture is that you you can hire a writer without it even blinking about it. No one expects Hillary Clinton to write her own memoir, even though she went to good school and could could write one. Yeah. You know, she's got other things to do.
1: It's called outsourcing. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just a funny thing that there's no shame attached to that, even for someone like her.
1: Well, what and, what, what, what you, like speaking of students and speaking of post you know post literate culture, um, what do you? find in students today and like how do you approach that um aspect of things when you're trying to advise young people who want to get into this i mean it sort of seems like uh you know uh they're they're walking into uh what you know what's the what's the right analogy like walking into the fire or whatever you know like it's so yeah difficult. i mean i i
3: i have a i have in a way it's easier for me to respond to that because I teach undergrads. And I I think it's trickier ethically and and professionally when you're teaching MFA students. So when I teach the undergrads, I'm teaching them grammar. I'm teaching them how to think. I'm teaching them what I consider to be good prose models. And I'm also saying, look, you know, you want to write, you have to read, you have to be a deep reader, you have to be really saturated with reading. So I feel like if I can get that readerliness across. I've done a lot. And then they go on. And if they go on to, to good graduate schools in writing, I feel like I've succeeded. And if they go on to become, you know, to, to do anything at all, I, I feel like I've succeeded. You know, whereas if I were evaluating, if I were talking to students who were, going to, who were coming to me as their last step in their education, they're going to be writers at the other end. I think it's a much harder ball of wax.
1: Yeah. What do you tell? You know, some, what do you tell somebody who says? I don't you,
3: even know. I don't even know what I would say. I would just say. I, I. First of all, I think I'd have to base it on how good they were. You know, I look at the work and I go, like, are you likely to succeed?
1: Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 No. It's like, it's it's super tough, and it's like. Uh, but if you
3: get the best students, imagine if you were in the program where you got the best students in the country. You had a lot of money, and you could give fellowships to say five or ten students a year, and in that. If that's the scenario, then it'd be, I think then it'd be a really interesting conversation. Like, it's an interesting question. The other, the other, the, the more typical thing is that you kind of have doubts about the students. Maybe they're not going to make it. That's harder. But if you have a really talented student, you're looking at me and you're going like, now, what do I say to this person? At some level, the very fact that they're talented carries so much, you know. You don't have to do that much. Right. You don't have to but, uh, you, you know, you, you want to tell them, look, the publishing world is small. You want to be polite. You don't want to insult people. You, you know, everyone knows everyone else. You, you know, you can do sort of charm school things like that, I think are actually very valuable.
1: Yeah. But, but um. Gently nudging them.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and keeping them kind of focused and. A lot of those very students uh, now who come to MFA programs who are really talented are so driven and so ambitious. You know, I don't even I don't even know what you would do. I think just kind of uh, exposing them to good writing of that you admire, but also them being a really tough editor critic. Because for me, as a writer, I really have so much. you know just affection and indebtedness to the teachers who were usually former journalists who just ripped my writing up as a cock you know when i was a cocky you know senior in high school or a freshman in college and said like this makes no sense i don't know what you're saying This doesn't, the word doesn't mean that right those people that I, I try to be that person to writers because a lot of times they've never been line edited and they don't know what that is and that for me was revelatory just yeah, to have someone putting pressure on every word I had
1: chosen. Well, right. Just yeah. like slowing, just slowing them down, you know? And
3: to, yeah. Maybe, so I do a lot of that with my undergrads. I just project what they've done on the board. I have them write just like personal essays and then I project it on to, you know, I have it on my computer screen and then I just do a line edit in front of the class, walk through it really slowly. That to me is, what I can really
1: offer objectively. I was going to say, well, you know, you can, a lot of times just making people aware of how much work it is, is plenty enough to scare off the pretenders, you know, but, um, uh, yeah. but what I, used yeah, to, I, what I used to find when I was teaching is that, uh, you know, I was always like, a, I was always very cautious about criticism, uh, and making sure that I didn't, uh, screw something up. You know, I got very, uh-huh. I, I would get scared because I would think to myself, you know, not, not every writer, Show like that, like really gifted writer, a writer who goes on to great publishing success or goes on to create works of really, um, you know, great importance or lasting uh, impact or whatever. Not all of them show at age nineteen, you know. Right. And so, like, if you if you say the wrong thing as a teacher or you you come uh, come down too hard on somebody, you know, you could potentially uh, screw that up. I found it very delicate, and you know, it's it's it's, mm. kind, of a, it's kind of a delicate process. You want to make sure that you aren't, you know, kind of glad-handing people and just, like, kind of, uh, you know, that you're all sunshine or whatever and telling people what they want to hear, but you also want to make sure that if you're offering criticism that it's not something that's ultimately damaging. Do you know what I'm saying?
3: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally... I do think, though, that... I, I, I Like, I incline to think that the ones who, who are really going to write are in, pretty indestructible. I mean, you can't... You know, they'll bounce back. You don't need to worry about it. I really do think that that was... their you know, like, that, you just, you can't stop them. That's
1: right. And, and
3: yeah. I, I just, I, I, I tend to, I really do think that that's the, the way they're built and that they'll get a million rejections and a million brutal, brutal uh, creative writing assessments and it won't matter. They'll just keep writing.
1: Like what? What do you think? What do you think that is? Because I, every writer I know has that. Like you can't stop. Yeah. You can't
3: stop. Yeah. I think it's a very. Yeah. I was. I, I was trying to respond to a why I write thing on a on a reading series blog, and I, and the best I could come up with. I haven't actually sent. This typical of me, you know. I like I wrote it, but I'm afraid it's not perfect, so I haven't sent it yet, and I'm not <laughs> sure. But basically, in my case, I think that I feel a psychic drive to recast my life you know like to look at it again and from various angles and fictionalize it but basically the elements of my writing are autobiographical and i i, I tweak them and I I, I I recast them and they can be quite fictional but still i'm looking at my own life and then there's so there's that component which is just kind of almost like um wound licking or, or some kind of some kind of i re- or you know, i'm 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 looking at it again I'm churning through it again that's psychological. And then there's also a purely artisanal side, which is like I love language and I love perfecting it and I love filing it down just right, you know, the way that some people work with wood really obsessively. Right. And they measure ten times and they cut once, like that. So I think there are two sides for, for me where one of it's really psych- psychological and one of it's like um, technical and that both are very strong things. And then I, and that's why I'm always starting, that's why I'll, I'll, I'll write 50 drafts on some first paragraph and it's crazy. Yeah. How do you, who does that?
1: But it's, but it's so great when it finally all clicks into place and it's the right. And shit.
3: you kind of be, yeah. And you think you, <laughs> and yeah, and you're pretty sure you, you're you going to know when that happens. But the, but the reality of your day to day life is obsessive revision, right? And obsessive
1: no, uh, like I've been, uh, I, I've been, uh, I've been writing uh, a novel, and I'm. I find myself like one of the things I like to do is read aloud what I've written to try to see if I got it right. Like, like hearing, mm-hmm. hearing it helps me. Yeah, yeah. I was sitting at my desk uh, just earlier today, and I think I read the same paragraph over and over again like twenty times in a row. Just wow. Re- yeah, I mean, just, you know what I'm saying? Like, that takes
3: that takes guts. I mean, I I find that that's so. Um, revealing. So it's so clarifying to hear myself read it that I actually do it seldom. It's too much. I was like, I find it like so true. You know, it's like, I'm going to see, I'm going to really hear how bad it is. I, read it a lot. <laughs> I
1: just, I finally caught myself. Like I didn't realize I was, I was almost like in a trance, you know what I'm saying? Like I just would, keep, yeah. I would finish it and then start over again. And I was like so deep into it. And then finally I sort of stepped outside of the experience and was like, if anybody could see you doing this, like they would think you're completely nuts. You know?
3: Yeah. Huh. I used to feel far more nuts as a poet in that way, of working with just really strange avant-garde little phrases, and that no, there was no readership for it. And w- at least now I feel like I have, you know, in writing kind of mainstream-ish fiction, there's a readership, and I'm, I'm 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 I feel like I have a much broader shot at a bigger readership. But with poetry, it's even crazier, and I really started to think I was like in an asylum, you know, just like playing with some grit on the floor. Well, looking at it from different angles.
1: That's you know? that's peripheral. I mean, you know, like, literature is peripheral to the culture at this point. Poetry, mm-hmm. especially avant-garde poetry, even more so. And so yes. you know, I actually wanted to ask you, like, uh, I haven't asked enough people this question, but, like, do you think there's any chance that literature will ever be back close to the center of our culture? Like, I mean, I, I, it doesn't seem likely in our lifetimes, but, I mean, do you know what
3: i like as when? Like, what, what what era are you thinking of? Like, I,
1: just closer. I, you know, I don't even know. I
3: mean, oh, you mean, like, more central, more vital?
1: Yeah. Like, do you think that, that, like, is it possible to move it back at this point, or are we so deep into the digital screen world and multimedia and so many different things competing for people's attention that, like, long-form reading and books and their their import to mm. culture will ever like achieve the heights that it achieved you know in like the early part of the 20th century or the late 19th mm-hmm, century
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know my my kind of wonky or rational side would say no but i i i i have there there are these bizarre things you know like this, for instance the harry potter the, the 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 explosion of reading among grade school kids around harry potter who saw that coming Right. Who, there are so many strange things that happen, and that are non-deterministic. You know that, that that happen in our culture or in our world. They just come out of nowhere, and you just think, "God bless that woman in England on welfare who wrote this Harry Potter, and got all, the, you know, more than one generation in love with books."
1: Well, but and you know, you just who saw that coming, though? No, no one. And th- that's the thing. Like, <laughs> I, I think about success. Uh, you know, a sales success, at least on that level and yeah. the the explosion that happened like obviously, I think I mean I haven't read uh, but a little bit of the first Harry Potter book. I'm not one of those people who read all those, but I imagine I will. Was as my daughter gets older, you know, I'll probably mm-hmm,
3: same here. Yeah, I read like the first one or two.
1: Yeah, and so, but I, you know, I've read enough about and uh, have sort of gotten an, um, a feel for it through pe- you know friends of mine who have read them that the books are good. Like they're av- they're well they are good. Yeah, they're yeah. well crafted. But like when it comes to a book catching the catching hold like that in the in the popular consciousness. um Like, it is such a mystery. Like, what... Mm -hmm. How do you explain that? Is there a God? (laughs) You know, like, what is happening when when something like that gets its hooks into people? Like, it's just so mysterious to me and so fascinating, you know?
3: Yeah, same here. And and yet, who would ever thought if it did happen, it would happen in the form of a book at that moment, when the death of reading was something you heard more and more about every year. So, I mean... I I, I want to say I'm agnostic on this question of long-form literary experience, you know, coming back or not. But, you know, sometimes I, I, I was reading an interview with a New Yorker writer who wrote, I can't remember who it was, but she was saying that her daughter doesn't have the readerliness to appreciate what she, the mother New Yorker essayist, was doing. That 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 sort of verbal orientation was passing, but I, maybe that her daughter was just kind of obtuse. I don't know. You know, like I don't know, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what to say. I I, 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 I also feel sort of, I don't, I don't want to get in a sort of more take the petty position of well, whatever I'm doing should be central to the culture. You know, right, right, right. You know, just because I'm doing it, and I, maybe that, maybe that comes from doing poetry for a while, is that, you know, I did it knowing full well no one read it, and I did it anyway, and I, I, I guess, and at some level, that was very hard psychically, and I, I couldn't stand, I couldn't sustain it, but um, I also want to feel like, well, you know, I'm, I, I'll, I'm happy have found something I I love doing and and if if I can get some readers that's great but I'm going to do it anyway and and the larger cultural questions of whether it's central or marginal I, I guess I just can't I can't handle paying attention to them they're too you know, too fraught.
1: Yeah, that's like
3: probably, I I have too much invested interest in it to even react. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, no, it's been, it's probably not good for the writing to spend too much time pondering that. You know what I'm saying? At some point, it's just yeah, like,
3: and, I, and I and also it's such a familiar kind of melancholy thing to to kind of go oh you know it's all dying. It's been people have been talking that way since Spengler, at least. You know, it's like the 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 decline and fall. And I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't like that tone. I don't, I don't, I'm not like that really. I don't, but you know, so I don't know. I know I also am willing to be surprised.
0: So I don't know.
1: Yeah, no, I think like, I think like part, like the, the most of the time when I think about it, I think about it while I'm watching TV <laughs> not while,
0: or, or after, I finish, yeah.
1: after fin- I finish reading something that I really love as opposed to writing something that I'm satisfied with. Like, it's always like, my God, this book is so great. And yet, you turn on the TV, and like this author's not being interviewed on. Uh, yeah, you know what yeah. I'm saying. It's like that's that's yeah. when, that's when I feel it. It's like I feel like the, the inju- I feel the injustice more when I've read something great, or when I happen to be like sitting through like the Real Housewives of New Jersey or something. You know, what I'm
3: exactly. When they're going down two or three levels to churn up celebrity, when you know exactly, there's some really interesting writer who's totally unknown. Yeah, okay. I hear you. I totally, I, I totally hear you when you put it that way, especially.
2: Yeah. So, but
3: um. Yeah, I remember reading a really great novel, uh, a few years back, Disgrace, but could say, uh, and thinking at the time, I don't care that no one reads anymore. I mean, really reacting to it like that. I love this book. This book's so great. It doesn't matter to me. Like that was definitely part of the experience. I remember thinking just like, uh, somehow that idea of the marginality of reading came up in the very pleasure I was feeling in the book. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, Yeah, just like, fuck it. I like it.
3: Yeah, like, and and somehow, matter. yeah, exa- exactly. That was exactly it. Yeah, and somehow, that I was amazed at how good it was. I was just like, so I was. So, it sounds to me like a perfect novel. It was, it, was, it was one of the closest things to a perfect novel I've ever read, or actually a disgrace. And I remember thinking, this thing is just full on close to perfect. And and I don't think many people know about it in the in this, in the states. It was won a Warner Booker Prize, and but but somehow it just doesn't matter at all to me right now. You I just I'm like
1: loving it. Yeah, like whenever I read a book like that, I, feel, I just feel like it's... I always have the same reaction to books that I think are truly great in that I always, like, close it and when I'm finished with it, and I'm like, well, this just said everything. It didn't miss anything. <laughs> you right. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about Wichita before I let you go. Like, Wichita, sure. you know, Wichita the book, but also Wichita the place, uh, you know, which, mm-hmm. ob- which <laughs> obviously figures prominently. Like, how did you come to writing it?
3: Well... I, you know, I wrote a kind of really more memoir-ish autobiographical novel that didn't sell. And I had to go back to the drawing board. And I, uh, I just had to really think about what was working fictionally in the purest sense. So it went through a lot of different drafts, a lot of different moments. But at the center of it was this brother relationship. And that's what I could, I felt like I could take that brother relationship and, and set it down in a variety of Eras like epics or or situations, and that would be ground. That would be the core of the book. And so, um, you know, I decided to move it up a bit in time to get it, give myself some distance. I, I made the characters basically a generationally younger, and uh, set it all and unified the place. I set it all in Wichita as opposed to moving around four or five different places. So I was simplifying things in order to make the likelihood of a successful narrative higher. I just got humbler, you know, and I saw like, okay, I'm going to, they're going to have to cut, I have to keep the characters. There have to be fewer characters. It has to be one place. And so it was a whittling down process.
1: Yeah. But you know, but so, this is the thing though. You say you got humbler and you say you simplified, but like that's hard work, you know, like sometimes yeah. streamlining it and simplifying it and clarify, yeah. clarifying something in writing, uh, is actually what's really hard. It's actually quite easy to say things in a complicated way,
3: you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, that's that's for sure. I think it is, and I, I think it genuinely is very humbling uh, and hard, psychologically hard, to let go of all the complexity and, 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 the, and the sense of having a lot of balls up in the air and go, like, look at all these balls up in the air, look at all this I'm juggling. Right. You know, and just to do one or two is kind of like, God, <laughs> you know, you kind of go, like, well, I'm not going to drop them.
1: Right. Well, and you, but it also, it's like you burrow in, you know what I'm saying? It's like it, you, yeah. can, you can skim along the surface of like 16 different things or you can focus like, you know, all of the powers of your concentration and attention on like two and that yeah. that winds up being better fiction, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in the end, you really have to just absolutely put that at the peak of the pyramid, you know, like you just want to be, an, you want it to be an absorbing read and i uh, do what i would do whatever it took and i felt you know i had to like give up a lot of different little tricks and so that's that, that that's that's a kind of a roundabout way of saying how i got to be witch tall but
1: you didn't give up on it i mean this like this book
3: no no this book that's was that's why I,
1: you, you kind of like were a dog with a bone with it i mean it sounds oh like
3: yeah it. yeah 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 that's very a, a very um it's very much a story. the 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 story of the writing of it is very much about um, doggedness and not giving up. Yeah, for sure. I I feel like it would never be over, and then finally it was over. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's about where I, that's
1: about where I am right now. Like
3: guess... And you, I always tell people who are trying to finish a book, a uh, narrative that's got any kind of literary component, you know, just like add another year on.
1: Yeah. Yes.
3: and and, and you do not want to hear that when you've been working for a few years. I thought this, like you, I thought
1: this thing was going to be done in May, and now I'm like, <laughs> if it, if it's done by the end of this year, I'll be I'll be thrilled. But
3: yeah, it's like oh, false
1: summits. You keep getting up to the summit, and then you realize it's not the summit.
3: <laughs> and the trippy thing about that is, you can work for years, and then someone will sit down and read it in two hours. And, you, and at one level, that's really flattering. You go like, wow, you said you read that in one sitting—that's amazing. But then you think, I worked for years on that. How could that? How can there be any kind of uh, you know, how can you square those realities of how long it took to build it and then how quickly it was consumed, you know?
1: Yeah, well, easy reading, hard writing, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's actually one of the things I have my students paraphrase. I'm really into paraphrase. And uh, that's, yeah, there's one from Hawthorne he says, easy reading is damned hard writing.
0: I couldn't
1: agree more. Or at least I'm hoping, yeah,
0: I, I'm hoping that's the case. I'm hoping that's the case. Because, yeah, we both are. You know, I've wrestled with it.
1: But uh so um you know, the other thing that I heard you say is that the novel initially started out on a much more memoirish uh right. level. And so did you? But it, but it was still fiction from the beginning, correct? I mean,
3: yeah, it was, was still just, fiction. You know, it was never not. A, it was never a memoir. It was never part two of On a Wave or something. It was really a memoir. I mean, it was really a fiction. It was really a narrative. Uh, really a novel. But um, uh, it was more a memoirish than I realized. You know, with a little distance, I put it aside for like six months or a year, and I read it again. and I was like, first of all, it's not working very well, and secondly it's very memoirish and you need to just really make a novel out of this
1: well yeah i mean so i guess the question i wanted to ask is is that when you wind up moving things away from the immediacy of your own personal experience did you find that the writing improved or that your ability to um, piece together the mechanics of the story uh improved
3: yeah, I think you can get – yeah, because you get less you – you're more ruthless. You're less attached to a specific sequence of events. You go like, well, don't think of the times of what actually happened. Think about what's interesting like as a as like um, to keep some tension in the scene or to keep a narrative drive. Like what are you going to do for narrative drive? You've got to do whatever you've got to do. You're not going to try to be true to your life really. You know what I mean? You can't have that be the priority or you're going to lose the reader.
1: Yeah, Maybe. it gets boring. To, to 19, yeah, 10, 10.
3: Or, or it's just not working. It's not even, you know, you don't even know. It's, just fall, it's failing in some way. Yeah. And you think, why is this not better? And you think, well, you're just, you're trying to be, you're, just, you're hanging on to this fidelity to your life. And does the actual sequence say a bit?
1: Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like whenever I'm like, why is this so boring? It's like because you're writing about your actual life.
3: <laughs> yeah, and you think that should be a guarantee. Like you read, you'll also read like, you know, James Joyce, had someone measure, you know, some turnstile in Dublin and like get it. He wanted it to be actually to the inch, right? But um, and that doesn't always work. You know, yeah.
1: it can be
3: terrible. Can be a bad idea.
1: So what's next for you? Are you working on something else already?
3: <laughs> yeah, what's next is, you know, I thought I had a really fun surfer novel, and I do. But I, but what's really emotionally. Dr- kind of holding me as um, a sequence of stories that may be linked may be linked into a novel, but basically I'm writing some short stories. I think I had a lot of hunger to, to feel like I was finishing things, and after having taken so many years to finish that novel, I was like, but I also am, like I was saying before about this the sort of psychological component, there must be, there's something in these stories that is making me want to write them first. So that's what I'm working on, just a sequence of stories, cycle of stories. Cool. Well, and well, what say. about you? You're just trying to finish what? I'm you finishing were, I,
1: I'm finishing a novel and then it was funny mm-hmm. to hear it's funny to hear you say that you wanted to write a uh, you know stories and and have that sensation of actually getting stuff done because all I've been dreaming about is like once I get this novel done I'm just going mm-hmm. to I'm going to write an essay. <laughs> like, <you
3: know? laughs> yeah, an essay or like a rush flash fiction or anything yes. to put the period on just, it and get it out there. Yeah, I'm just I know. do
1: some haikus for about a month. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well,
1: I'll tell you, man. It's been super fun talking with you, and uh, congr- here. congratulations on uh, on both books—the memoir and then also the new novel—and uh, you know, best of luck uh, also on this uh, this collection of stories.
3: Well, thanks so much, Brad, and, and and best of luck to you on yours. All right, thank you. All right, man. Goodbye. Okay,
1: Okay, guys, there you go. That is the program. That is Thad Zolkowski. Go get his novel. It is called Wichita. It is available from Tonga Books. You can also check out his memoir, On a Wave. That is available from Grove Atlantic. And you can find Thad on the web at Facebook. This program has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. Go check it out. And, hey, if you want to donate a few bucks to help keep the show going, you can do that by clicking Donate up there in the top right sidebar. The program has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. Follow it. Keep up with all the latest uh, news and information. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. If you would like to read my intensely personal tweeting, the show has a Facebook presence. And if you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, that's it for today. I've had enough. Uh, I think I need to stand up. I need to move around. I need to go stretch. I need to listen to some music. I need to pause for a moment and stare at the sky and ponder the infinite reach of the universe and the relatively inconsequential nature of my daily psychodrama in the grand scheme of things. Please remember that Camus once said that quote, no artist tolerates reality and quote, and that Frida Kahlo had an affair with Leon Trotsky. I will be back again soon. Uh, I'll be talking to another writer. You can listen to it for free. You can jog while listening. You can walk while listening. You can jazzercise while listening. You can listen Uh, while driving at an incredible rate of speed down a lonely desert highway in a desperate and ultimately futile attempt to escape the fact that you are, in fact, a writer.